Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. As you know, I'm, I moved back east. I'm a big Eagles fan. And the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. But I have to tell you, when I lived in L.A. all those years, I would used to stick up for the Philly fans and say, you know, we're, we're good people. But I'm going to tell you something. Watching the local news, it was just awful. I don't understand what goes through these people's heads. We just got to the Super Bowl two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row, someone's been arrested for punching a police horse. Who does that? It's just, it's disgusting to me. And then this other night, someone drove the dune buggy up the Art Museum steps. I mean, the Art Museum steps are a symbol of Philadelphia with Rocky, and someone drives a dune buggy. So I'm going to tell you, I hope I hope we win the Super Bowl, and I want to go to the parade, but I'm thinking of staying in the suburbs of South Jersey where I live, because it's just, it's too crazy. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my my guest he's a, he's a he's a great producer and writer and his his resume is just killer. I mean he has written TV shows and produced TV shows, not only sitcoms but also dramas. And my guest is Michael Saltzman. How you doing, Michael? I'm well, Steve. Thanks. Yeah, so it's good to have you on. So um, now now you you started writing. When did you decide you wanted to be a writer? As a as a kid, did you watch a lot of TV or how did your career get to the position where you are? Uh, I'm not one of those people who always knew they would be a writer. I, um, I mean, I guess if I look back at my life, I could, I could sort of chart a path of like, oh, I guess that makes sense, because writing, at least you know, in school, writing papers came relatively easy, easily for me. Um, but in terms of being an actual professional writer, I was, I was like a senior in college, and I, I had originally thought maybe I was going to go into acting until uh, being in college disabused me of that notion. Um, and I was trying to figure out what to do, and, and actually I was in a play that uh, two other undergraduates had written uh, that was sort of an epiphany for me because it had never really occurred to me, this is going to sound silly, it had never occurred to me that, that, that living people could be writers. Writers are always famous dead people. And so the, to see people my age writing um, scripts made me think, oh, maybe I could, I could do that. And then I sort of went to, to journalism school, but didn't take it fully seriously and was trying to write skits and get on Saturday Night Live or something like that. Um, and, and then after I graduated, journalism school was sort of uh, on a lark. Uh, I decided with a friend of mine to try and, and write um, a sitcom script, and we really had no idea what we were doing. It was a complete, uh, you know, just something to do to have fun and, and really had no idea how the business worked at all. Well, what what made you want to get into acting? I mean, as you said, as you're a kid, you went to school for acting. Did you did you have family in the business, or what made you gravitate towards that? No, I, I think as a, I mean, I, I always loved movies and television and theater growing up. I didn't really have any anyone I knew in the business. Um, but I when I didn't, I didn't go to school for acting. I mean, I, I did plays in high school, and then when I went to college, I did plays. I really liked musicals, but I, I discovered pretty quickly in college that I, I actually was not a very good singer. I was good enough for high school, but when I, when I was in college, there were people who had been on Broadway, and I suddenly went, oh, okay, that's, that's what it takes to do that. Um, and then I, had, I, I knew someone who had gone to Juilliard, and she had said, if you can do anything else in life other than acting, do it, which kind of scared me a bit. And I realized it just, it just wasn't cut out. I wasn't cut out for it. Um, but I always loved film and TV and, and movies, uh, you know, obsessively so. Um, you know, when I was 13, I wrote an article for the Los Angeles Times that was a kid's eye view of the TV season. I mean, I was really obsessed with television growing up. Um, 
but it never occurred to me that I could actually do it. Uh, and I all, this is also going to sound silly. I kind of understood that people wrote movies. I didn't really think that people wrote television. I mean, I, I knew it abstractly, but not on a practical level. I'm just amazed you wrote an article of 13 for the LA Times. How did that come about? Because I know I wrote an article for my local newspaper, the Cherry Hill News in New Jersey, when I was like eight. I interviewed this football player. My mom took me to this place because I wanted to write. And that was just a little newspaper. But how, what, how did this LA Times thing come up? That's, that's awesome. The connection I had there is my mother was a copy editor. You know, she would, this was, if you've seen the post and you saw them doing the, the stuff with those little kind of lead characters and, and arranging the, you know, she would proofread those things. Um, and she had started there. And, uh, and she knew I was obsessed with TV and I would have her bring home the, the ratings every week and I would study the ratings um, and she just went to her uh, her boss who was on the uh, entertainment section and said, you know, my, my son's really interested in television and really has a lot of opinions on the new season. I thought it might be a fun idea to have like a 13-year-old give his impression of TV and it was, it was a time when everyone was kind of obsessed, like what are kids watching kind of stuff. So um, he said, sure, let me see what he can write up and I, it, I, I'm not saying it was a great piece of writing but it was, you know, a 13-year-old's perspective of TV at the time. Um, but ironically, I had very adult, <laughs> very adult tastes, so it wasn't like I was giving real insight into what kids liked. I was kind of giving insight into what a 30-year-old and a 13-year-old uh, body liked. <laughs> so now, you said when you went uh, for journalism, I believe you went to Columbia? Yeah. Now, where did you do your... I went, un- where- I went to Yale undergraduate, and then I went to Columbia Journalism for graduate school. So you go, so you're an Ivy League guy, so right there we know you're smart. I mean, people don't get in if they're not smart. So when you... when you surprised. <laughs> well, I, I, I have really rich parents. I have I have friends who went to Brown, who was a great school, but man, they, he told me those guys they were like party animals because I guess there's so much pressure and it just surprises you because where I grew up we had a lot of people who went to Ivy League schools and looking back I'm like wow they were the guys who really smoked a lot of dope back in like 80, 82, 83. <laughs> so so you sit there so you get out of journalism school and and you decide that you're going to write a TV script now. Did you stay in New York, or did you move back yeah, to Yeah, I, I was in New York. I, I really, when I look back on my life, I really had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I, had, I was looking wanted. I assumed if you graduated from Columbia Journalism, it would be like graduating from Columbia Medical School or Law School, and, and then you'd, you'd be, like, drafted by all the, you know, you could apply to ABC or CBS or NBC or the New York Times, and they'd open their doors for you. And the exact opposite was true. They, they really didn't care at all. I, I couldn't even get a job as a researcher at CBS News. So I went to an employment agency because I was a fast typist, and I got hired um, on the first season of 48 Hours at CBS News, um, basically as an assistant production secretary. You know, I, I did the budgets, I got people lunches, answered phones, things like that. Um, and then I asked around, and I was like, how do you become a producer, which is what I was interested in doing. And it was, they laid out two options. One was like a 15-year program where you'd work, gradually work your way up to a producer level. The other was to go off to Montana and, and work at a local station for 10 years and come back to New York after you've proven yourself, none of which was particularly appealing to me. <laughs> and both my parents were journalists, so it felt like they'd already kind of made their mark in that field. So I was only in it kind of half interested anyway, and you know I was writing these kind of skits on the side, and then I started freelancing for Premier Magazine, which was a movie magazine in the um, in the late '80s, early '90s. And what happened was uh, I bought tickets to a Paley 
Center. Back then it was called the Museum of Television and Radio, and it was a tribute to its Gary Shandling show, and it was an evening with Gary Shandling and Alan Dwight Bell and Bernie Brillstein, and they were on a panel talking about the their show, and I bought two tickets thinking I'd you know hopefully get a date for the evening, but I couldn't find anyone. And so I had a friend who was a also who had been a student at Columbia Journalism, and we were two of the few people left in New York who had gone to Columbia. Everyone else kind of scattered across the country to, to start their careers. And he said, and, and so we both went to that, and that's kind of where the light bulb went off, where they were describing what it was like to write a television show, and it just sounded, wow, that sounds like a pretty great uh, job. And we kind of went out to dinner afterwards, and, he, I, and I said, I've always kind of thought about doing that. And he said, that's funny, me too. And so we said, well, maybe we should try to, to do it together. Um, and so after, you know, I get together after work and on weekends, and, you know, we kicked around some ideas for original shows, none of which we could agree on. Um, and finally I said, well, maybe we should write a, sh a script of a show that we both like, our favorite show on TV or something like that, without really knowing what a spec script even was. And at the time, both of our, the, the show that we both loved the most was Cheers. And so we decided to write a sample script for Cheers. And that was the first thing we, we said about writing. So you write that, and now do you get any feedback on it, or do you get any activity on it? <laughs> um, let's see. Well, the the only connection I had to television at that point is uh, the one writer's name I knew of, of television was David Lloyd, who had written the Chuckles Bites the Dust episode for the Mary Tyler Moore show, which I, I knew very well. And I had actually gone to college with one of his sons, and I you know, called information, and his name was listed in Beverly Hills, and I called him up, you know, out of the blue, and said, hi, you know, I introduced myself, um, I went to college with your son, I've written this script for Cheers, and I was wondering if I could get your uh, feedback on it. What I didn't know about David Lloyd is that he was a famous curmudgeon, uh, and he basically said, um, you know, there's people on the show who do that kind of thing, send it to them, uh, don't call me again. <laughs> and then <hung> up. <laughs> Um, but that was, I was like, okay, well, that was my one connection that I thought I might have. That That's a dead end now. Um, the one other connection that I, that I came across was um, there was an executive at NBC named Morgan Gendel who was on the drama side who had worked with my mother once. And I had what I had done the summer before between graduate school and working at CBS is I had done a, um, a parody documentary on Sid and Marty Croft that had won a student Emmy award and he had seen it and he, he was impressed with the way it was edited and thought I had a good comic rhythm and he thought it was funny and he said you know he could see me write you know cutting promos for them and he said if you ever write anything I'd be happy to read it so I took him up on that and I sent him the script and he said look I'm in drama I really don't know the comedy side real well but from what I can tell from reading the comedy scripts this seems as good as the stuff I see that comes across our desk so I think you have ability here. He said that you have to write more scripts and you have to be out in Los Angeles and you have to get an agent. Uh, and I said, okay. Um, and so uh, my friend Bill uh, Diamond and I, we we set about writing a couple more scripts. I, I moved back to Los Angeles to live with my parents and he would fly out, uh, you know, for a few weeks at a time and we'd write another script. And then we just kind of did that for, boy, about um, six months or so. Um, trying to get an agent uh, during that time. Well, then you start. I mean, you start getting work. When I'm looking at your resume, now what was your first script you sold? Because after that, you work on some killer shows. I mean, you know, and, and I'm, I'm actually an old fan of anything but love. But uh, oh. I, I remember because <laughs> yeah, I was. That, I mean, the 
the technically the very first script that we we uh, wrote was a freelance script for a show called Doctor Doctor that uh, was co-created by Norman Steinberg, who's one of the writers from Blazing Saddles, and David Frankel, who, uh, who directed The Devil Wears Prada. Um, it was a show they created on CBS with Matt Frewer, um, and our agent represented them, and uh, she kind of put us together. We really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, they seemed to like our first draft. They gave us some notes for the second draft. They said, when is it to do? Uh, and, you know, they said, you know, uh, you know, no rush. We're like, oh, okay. And, <laughs> and then we sort of took about a month because we were doing other stuff to kind of, and they're like, what the hell is the second draft? And we had no idea what the deadline was. We didn't know how it worked. We were very naive about it, and we eventually got it into them. But uh, when staffing season ultimately came along, uh, we, we, had, we had actually turned down an offer for the Hogan family. Um, which had wanted us before the seasons had started, but um, and our and my agent was livid. He said, "What do you mean you can't turn it down? We had, we, we had no jo- no job offers." I said, "Well, the one kind of deal I made with myself is that I only wanted to work on a show that I would watch, and I, I don't watch that show." And he said, well, "Why don't you watch it?" And I said, "Okay." So I watched it, and I said, "Yeah, it's not a show I would want to write for." And it was a combination of that and the fact that the people that we met with, the showrunners, uh, smoked during the meeting. And I'm terribly allergic to cigarette smoke, and I could barely take it. And I said, I can't work in a room where people are smoking. And then people were allowed to smoke in the room back then. Um, so we waited for staffing season, and, and the show that came along that we were most interested in was Anything But Love, um, because the person who was taking the show over, it was the show was okay for the first six episodes they did, but the, it was getting revamped between seasons. And Peter and Noah, who is the, the writer in charge of the show, the executive producer, told us what he was doing uh, to change it around. And he talked about bringing Ann Magnuson in and some other people and how he was reconceiving the show. And that all sounded really exciting to us. And so we decided to go to go there as, as, you know, among the shows that were interested in signing us. Now, that was a show that was just, it was Richard Lewis and Jamie Lee Curtis, I believe. And it was a, it was one of those shows that we, I was surprised when it got canceled. I think because I did stand-up comedy back then, and we all love Richard Lewis. And it was so good to see someone like him who had done so many letter Betterman appearances, but never really got that TV thing. And we were like, a lot of me and my friends were pissed when that show got canceled. That was a weird thing. What, ha- what happened was, it was the first time a studio actually canceled a show. Uh, so I, they, they had done six episodes, and they got revamped, and we were on the, for the second season where we did 22 episodes. And then what happened was we were waiting for the pickup, and they, they pulled the plug because 20th Century Fox felt that they weren't going to be able to make their money back on it. And, uh, and that was the first time that had ever happened. So we, we then met with other shows, and, uh, and Bill and I got hired on Wings, and about a week or two after we signed on the wings, they changed their mind and they did pick up the show. And they said, great, come on back to the show. And we're like, well, we can't. We signed a contract. And what happened was the show lost the vast majority of its writers because of that situation. And so it kind of suffered in its third season because it lost motive, most of its writing staff and um, was kind of, a, kind of wounded from that whole experience, I think. Um, and then it got canceled after that that third season. Well, for me, you know, Wings. I know you got you went to Wings. Wings, in my eyes, and you know, me and my girlfriend talk about this because she's a big TV. She's more of a TV junkie than me. And Wings is one of those shows that is so damn underrated because just the characters it had such an amazing cast of characters, and you know, I mean, Tony Shalhoub and everyone. And it, it really irritates me that you don't hear like. 
people who are under 40 don't really know wings, and it sort of pisses you off. I mean, what was it like was going into a, a gig like that where you have such amazing characters to write for? Well, people under 40 don't know a lot of things, unfortunately. There's so much entertainment now, it's very hard. You know, growing up, I think you and I were fortunate where you just were exposed to, like, the previous history of television. So even shows I was too young to grow up with, like, you know, Leave it to Beaver, I still was familiar with it. Um, and then I, I, you know, I, and then in, in reruns, you'd see all the shows that were predated your, your existence. You really kind of, if you were home a lot or, or watch TV a lot, you kind of got a history of TV. But Wings, Wings was kind of a real important show for me to get on. Um, you know, after anything below, we had uh, other offers and there's shows that were offering us more money and a better title. Uh, but I, Wings was, was created by the guys who had been running Cheers, which was to me the gold standard. And to me, the most important thing was to work with the best people and learn from the best people. And so that, that was the opportunity we got our wings. It was um, created and run by David Angel and Peter Casey and David Lee. Uh, that's where I met Ken Levine with his partner David Isaacs, who would freelance and punch up uh, nights on that show. And David Lloyd, who I had called years ago, was actually working on that show. So I actually got to meet and work with him, which was a thrill. Um, so Wings had shot six episodes in a kind of abbreviated first season. Um, but what happened was is it kind of premiered the same week as Twin Peaks, and it got kind of lost in the shuffle and publicity because it was up against Twin Peaks, and it was kind of ignored, um, and it was kind of sort of dismissed as a Cheers knockoff, like Cheers set in an airport. Um, and, you know, so it kind of had an inferiority complex to some degree because of that. But I, I was fortunate that, you know, when I, when I started on it, you know, it was really new and fresh for the cast, and everyone was really excited to be there. And Bill and I actually uh, created Tony Shalhoub's character, Antonio. Oh, really? Um, and in fact, I almost played him at, at, at first, because what had happened was we had written this sort of modern Italian waiter for a guest spot episode where it was the Valentine's Day episode where Joe and Helen go to different places, and Joe thinks that the, there's special places where they had their first kiss, and Helen who used to be overweight, thought it was uh, where they had their first meal. Um, and, uh, and Tony Shalab is the waiter there. And they couldn't originally cast the part. They kept bringing in people like Larry Storch, who would do kind of old-school Italian, which is not what we were looking for. So by the time we had the table read, um, he hadn't been cast yet. So I, I read the part at the table and did reasonably well with it to the point where the casting director came up to me and said, would you be willing to play this part? Now, the former actor in me was very excited by that notion, and then the reality of, like, me freezing in front of a studio audience and blowing the show kind of crept in. I was like, please, please find someone. And, uh, and then they, and they hired Tony, who did so well on that show, I think the last bit was like six or seven minutes. He was just hilarious that they decided to bring him back the next season. And Bill and I wrote the episode where he then was introduced in the show as a regular. And originally they wanted to change the character because uh, they thought it had to be someone different. And there was like, he was going to be like a taxi. He was always a taxi cab driver, but it was uh, a different character and different characteristic. But then we did the script and it wasn't quite working. Um, and then I just sort of said, why don't we just make him the guy that made us laugh in the, in the other episode? And that's what he did, and then then he was, you know, became one of the favorites on the show. That must be a great feeling for you as a writer to sit there and, and as you said, you know, you wrote it and you couldn't find anyone to play it, and then everybody remembers that character. For you to develop that and you getting seeing, you know, bigger parts for him, that must be like a very notch in your cap as a writer. 
it's very exciting to see anything like that happen. I mean, it's just thrilling to see anything that you write, you know, get performed. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, you know, Wings was a really great experience because it was a real writer's show, and you were working with the top writers in the business, um, and you had a great cast. And it was, it was a real wonderful, wonderful experience that uh, I learned a tremendous amount on because you were working with, there was a continuum. In other words, you know, let's, if you think Mary Tyler Moore's show is one of the, the first real ensemble workplace comedies that was like kind of the gold standard, and you trace, you know, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns who created that show, and then you see, learn their craft on Taxi from that same group of people, and then Casey and Joan Lee learn their craft from the Charles Brothers. There was a kind of comedy continuum that I was very uh, excited to be a part of because I felt I really wanted to learn from the best people I could learn from. Um, and, and it was a wonderful opportunity to do that. Now, you left Wings to go to Murphy Brown. How did that happen? What was the uh, circumstances behind that? Well, our contract was up on Wings. Um, there's a, there's, if you talk to any writing teams, I'm sure Ken and Ken Levine would have said something similar. Uh, you know, there's this thing where you get paid as one person if you're a, writer, if you're a writing team, which gets very frustrating very quickly. And in, in the, in, you know, in some cases, it makes sense because it's like one person's really good in the room and the other one's good at scripts. In the case of Bill and myself, uh, we were both good at scripts and we were both good in the room. And so they were really getting a bargain when you get two people for the price of one for that. At a certain point, you're realizing that each one of you is contributing more, perhaps, than someone who's getting a full salary, and you start resenting that. Um, what happened was we actually had an idea for an original pilot that the Charles Brothers Company uh, got wind of and wanted to, to do with us, which was a tremendously exciting opportunity. Um, so we jumped at that at that uh, at that opportunity, but uh, unfortunately, as we were printing the script out to hand it in, uh, we were told that the Charles Brothers were leaving television. So we kind of, uh, you know, hitched our hitched our wagon to that, and then suddenly was gone. And so that pilot fizzled. Uh, we were kind of stuck um, with you know not not being on wings. We were then, the, the Charles Brothers had a show they were, had a, that they were making called, I think it was called Buck and Barry, and then it was called Local Heroes. It starred Bill Nunn and David Keith, um, and it ended up kind of never really making it to the air. It, Perry Gilpin was on it, uh, Doug Hutchinson, who played Toombs on X-Files, uh, Dan Davis, who was uh, the butler on The Nanny. Um, it was an interesting cast, interesting show, but it just never it never aired. We did like six episodes, and the showrunners quit, and it just it just it just fizzled. So we were kind of stuck mid season with nothing to do. And uh, Murphy Brown at the time was was uh, about to lose some of their key writers. Um, it was the first season after Dying English. It was a kind of tumultuous year for them, um, and they had three amazing writers who were about to leave: uh, Peter Tolan, Tom Palmer, and Michael Patrick King. Uh, we're all leaving at the end of the year, and so they brought us in to write a freelance episode. And an executive at Warner Brothers uh, suggested that they might hire us for the rest of the year, as opposed to just the episode, because when they that for the next season, when they had to bring in all new people, it might be nice to have someone who kind of knew how the show worked already to have a little bit more of a continuum. So that's what they did. They brought us in mid-season uh, on the show, and that was, you know, that was. Going on to a show that was a big hit show uh, already, which was a new experience for me, um, and just walking on a set you'd seen on TV every week, um, and like, oh, wow, here we are in the FYI bullpen, was pretty amazing. And Candace Bergen was a huge, huge star, um, so that was kind of intimidating to, to meet her for the first time. 
But, you know, after we got our feet wet, we started getting a little more comfortable, and uh, they hired a bunch of great people for the next season to go along with us. And uh, it was a wonderful, you know, experience, and, uh, and and that was very exciting. Well, now you said Candace Berg, is, you know, was a little intimidating. Did you do you feel when you're a writer? Do you put it in the back of your head sometimes that when you're writing for a big star, and as you said, it was no experience for you to come onto a show that was a very big success? Do you feel some kind of pressure? Not that they're giving you pressure, but just as the creator in you, do you sit there and say, "Man, I really have to deliver," or did you automatically get it, just kick back and let it roll in? No, no, no. You get. I mean, I tend to like to be sort of the to not give in to anxiety and, and fear and, and, and self doubt too much. In other words, it's sort of like my my philosophy is sort of like you know t- just take a deep breath and do the work and and you'll be okay. But I remember the very first draft that we wrote for for Murphy. I remember <laughs> just looking at it, going, I don't know if we can do this. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible rough draft. And this is nothing anyone saw. This is just, you know, the rough draft that Bill and I had written together. And we both kind of like, you know, rolled up our sleeves, started taking out our editing pen, punching it up, making the cuts, etc. And by the time we handed it in, you know, we were relatively satisfied with it, and, and they were relatively satisfied with it. But um, it was a it was a Phil episode, and what we didn't know, we loved Phil, we thought Phil was hilarious. What we didn't know is that uh, the other cast didn't love when it was a Phil episode because Pat Corley, who was a wonderful guy who played Phil, tended to get very then, like it was his episode, and, and uh, they didn't go over as well with the cast. Um, and so we didn't realize that at the time. So it was, it was an okay episode at the end, but it was not the one that people wanted. And then the next season, uh, the big episode that we wrote was the episode where she, um, where Murphy inadvertently kidnaps the president's cat, Socks, the Clinton's cat. Uh, and and Candace just, just loved that episode. And she said, now... These are the same guys who wrote the Phil episode, and they're like, "Yeah, well, how much it was them, and how much got rewritten?" Like, no, no, it don't, it didn't get rewritten at all. This was all their work. And Candace's like, "Really?" And from that point on, she really uh, trusted us, and and that was a nice feeling because she was a she's a wonderful woman, and 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 she uh, she really respected the writing. You know, in other words, she really honored the writers. If she liked it, she would just sell the hell out of it. You know, she would occasionally, if she ever had an issue, she'd raise it with you. Um, and you really wanted to make her happy because she was so appreciative of the work. Uh, and, the, and the rest of the cast followed suit. So that was, a, that was a really, you really thought you were working with the A-team on that show. So now you, you, you work your way up to executive producer for that show. And, um, yeah. And then, so then, then from there you went to The Naked Truth? What happened then was by the, by the time that we were executive producers, Bill and I, again, going back to that issue of, of splitting a salary and both feeling like we were able to do the work, the this, this season before we both started writing uh, individual episodes and realized that we were both able to kind of do it on our own. And so we ran the show together with a third person, Rob Bragan, that, that, that year. Um, but it became clear that we are kind of going our separate ways. And originally, Murphy Brown was supposed to be its last season when we were running it, and we kind of mapped out a finale and, and everything. And then midway through the year, Candace's husband, Louis Maul, uh, died, um, and that became a, a big issue. And, uh, and Candace, who had originally thought she was going to end the show, decided she didn't want to end it anymore, and the show was going to continue as it did for a couple more years. But by that point, I'd been on it for four years and felt I'd said all I had to say on the show and, and kind of wanted to try something different. So I went uh, to a deal at uh, NBC, and it was, a, it was an overall deal, which they used to give a lot at the time. And the first year I developed a pilot that uh, they bought, but they couldn't cast to the head of the network satisfaction. 
and that was very frustrating because it was a whole year and then nothing to show for it. So the before my second year of my deal started, they um, they asked me about the Naked Truth, and <laughs> the Naked Truth is a t- <laughs> that's a book right there. How familiar are you with the show? Well, I know it's Tealione. I know it was it took place in a newsroom or or a, a magazine, I believe. Here's what happened, and it's the craziest thing you'll ever. I mean, so the first season, the show was on ABC. Chris Thompson wrote a very, very funny pilot with Taylor about a woman who gets divorced from a millionaire and gets blacklisted everywhere. She's a photographer, and so the only job she can get is at a tabloid. So they did that, and then um, the, sh- the show was going along with the second episode, third episode. Chris had like a, a, a substance abuse problem, and he and Taya started up an affair. And if you track that first season of the show, you just you just can see a straight diagonal line of the show getting worse and worse with each successive week. So by the time the last couple episodes there, it's unintelligible. And it started off great. I mean, it really was one of it was a really terrific pilot. So what happened was ABC wanted to get a new showrunner, and they only wanted to pick it up for 13 episodes. But there was a clause in the contract where if ABC did not pick it up for a full 22-episode season, Brillstein Gray, the, um, the production company, could shop it, which they did, and they sold it to NBC, which they also did with another show on ABC, the Jeff Foxworthy show. So NBC basically stole two ABC shows from, out from under them. And so the second season, they <clears throat> brought in new showrunners and changed it from a tabloid to kind of a Us Weekly they brought in George Went inexplicably to play the, the boss, and then Holland Taylor, who was so funny as the boss in the first season, was demoted to kind of a, a different different role. Uh, they softened all the edges of the show. They blanded it out. It was a generic office work, workspace, you know, kind of office comedy. And it really wasn't very good, and they went through like three showrunners. Uh, they were a million dollars over budget, and they had gotten the post-Seinfeld slot, so it was really getting a lot of exposure and got great ratings because of that. But but uh, critically, it was not well-received. And so they were kind of starting from scratch, and so when they met with me, they, uh, they said, well, we'd like you to take it over. And I said, look, the only improvement you guys made last year was to her haircut. If I were put in charge with this, I would basically get rid of all the ensemble cast except for Holland Taylor because they really are not very clear characters to me. I'd give her a really strong supporting cast. I'd move it back to the tabloids and basically start over again. And they said, great, let's do that. I said, are you crazy? This would be the third version of the show in three years on two different networks. And they said, look, we're desperate. Uh, we, you know, Taya's a movie star, and once... Once she's once she's not on the Naked Truth, once it's not the Naked Truth, we lose her, and we really think she's a TV star too. What she was, I mean, Taya was beautiful and hilarious, had great timing. I mean, she was one of those. It's always that rare combo when you find someone who's really good looking and really funny and knows how to deliver a line, which Candace could do as well, or like a Ted Danson or Shelley Long. You know, a good looking person who's funny is is not always the easiest thing to find, and with Taya, you really had a home run with that. So I really wasn't sure if I should take the job or not. Um, they flew me up to David Duchovny's townhouse in Vancouver where they were shooting the X-Files and where she start was dating him. And as it turns out, I met her the night before they eloped. And, you know, she asked me to do the show. I explained to her what I wanted to do. She said that sounded great. Um, and then I flew back home. And ironically, one of the reasons I wanted to, I said yes to doing the show is I thought I could give a couple friends of mine their first jobs. And those two friends, one of them was Matt Weiner, who went on to create uh, Mad Men. 
and the other was Alan Heinberg, who wrote uh, the Wonder Woman movie this last uh, summer. Um, and I thought that would be fun to give them their first jobs and to work with some friends. And so I said yes, and then I, I brought in new cast members, as I, as I said I was going to do, which were Tom Verica and Amy Hill and uh, Chris Elliott and Jim Rash in his first job. And I was really excited about what we had created, but from the moment I said yes to that show, it was just like one disaster after another. Um, and it was, it was really one of the worst, worst uh, personal years for me, just in terms of what the experience was like. Creatively, I was actually really happy with a lot of the stuff we did. Um, and, and I thought if, this, if that show had been on after Seinfeld, it would have been a big hit. But unfortunately, what they did is they put us on, they created four, uh, a night of Monday night, four women-driven comedies. It was like Suddenly Susan, the Jenny McCarthy show, Caroline in the City, and us. Uh, we were the last one of that night, so I wouldn't even have been watching this at that point. And Taya referred to the night as Muff Monday. Um, and then she decided she really wasn't happy on being on the show. She was separated from David Duchovny, who she just got married to and wasn't seeing him a lot. So it was just, it was, it was basically not a very pleasant experience, but, um, you know, and then we ended up getting canceled after doing the 22, but only like about not 10 of them might have aired. Um, the, the last episode where I ended up effectively killing them all off in a hot air balloon accident, um, they would have survived if the show came back, but as it is, they died. That didn't even air until like a year later after the World Series on the West Coast or something like that. So that was a real disappointing year for me because I really felt we had some great people on it and some great writers, but it was just one of those things where it just had already run its course with the network where they, they didn't have a lot of patience for it. Well, now you, how do you sit there and just keep keep it together when that happens? When I mean, I know you know you had a great you know you had all these great shows you were on, but something like that, as you said, you got to you know it was your idea and it was creatively great, but it must be hard when you sit there and go to, have to go to work every day when you're thinking it sort of sucks, the experience sucks. It's sort of be like, must be sort of like walking on eggshells, which to me would not be a good, uh, you know, a good area to be able to write comedy at. It was not easy. It was, it was, I'll, I'll give, this is, this is the, I'll give you this as a kind of metaphor for it. It was like, um, it was like being raised in a really nice family where your parents care about you. They ask you how your day is. They give you a hug at night, kiss, tuck you into bed to walking into a, a family of uh, abusive alcoholics who, who punch you when you walk through the door and, and, and scream at you. It was like, what is this? It's just, it was, I'd only been in really great environments up until that point. In um, I kind of inherited a snake pit uh, on that show because there had been so much history that already had happened that it was just, it was just devolved into factions and people talking behind each other's back and this person hates that person. It was, it was unbearable. I mean, really, and not conducive to good creative environment. But that said, what I was most proud of, in spite of all that, uh, we did 22 episodes on time, on budget. And I'd say of the 22, at least 14 of them I was super proud of and the other eight that I remember having major issues with. When I watch them now, uh, they still each, each episode still has something that really you know, makes me laugh, or I think is a really good joke or a good storyline. You know, we did a lot of really good work on that show in spite of the impossible situation. Just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, my whole big thing was when we're back to the tabloids. We shot, I think, four or five episodes when Diana was uh, killed being chased by paparazzi in Paris, and uh, NBC and Brilson Gray were freaking out. We're like, well, we can't have it as a tabloid anymore. 
and I was like, we've already broken 12 stories, we shot four, I said, if it's not a tablet, I quit. Um, and so they did all this testing, and this was all taking me out of the room, taking me away from being able to focus on the show, where they'd ask test audiences, they'd show them the episode, and they'd say, um, is there anything this, uh, that's upsetting to you? And the eyes, no, nothing was upsetting to us. Um, does this remind you of any recent events, uh, current events you might have seen? No, no, nothing that reminds us. Does this remind, was there anyone killed recently that this makes you think about? No, no. Was there any member of the royal family that was killed? Like, oh, yeah, wasn't she being chased by paparazzi? Yes. Would that make you not want to watch this show? And they said, actually, no, I'd probably be more interested uh, knowing, <laughs> knowing that. And that's, but we had, that was like a month out of, out of production having to deal with that kind of stuff as opposed to focusing on, on the writing. And that was just one of many, many things that happened that year that were just ridiculous. Um, I mean, more, more awful, crazy stuff happened in that one season than I'd seen in my entire career on other shows. Well, so you're writing for the show. I know you ended up developing a show called Baby Bob, and then you know, and you've been working on these great sitcoms. But I want to talk about recently, the last you know few years. Um, how did you get into drama? Because it's not like you're just writing on. You weren't writing on like sitcoms. You were writing on really killer sitcoms, and you know, and yet you probably get right. that. You get well, that. I, just a, a brief aside on the Baby Bob of it all. I didn't really. I, I developed it. I didn't create it. What happened with that was. CBS had done a pilot uh, of a show with a talking baby based on these commercials for freeinternet.com that had been popular. Uh, and they showed it to me, and I thought it was not, not very good. But they came to me with a, you know, less, when less means as comes to you with a proposition like this, it's hard to say no. They said, look, if you can write uh, a pilot script that we like, you'll go straight to series, six episodes. And so I thought, well, okay. And I said, I, you know, it's a talking baby. This sounds like a terrible idea. I said, I'm going to have a test, and he's going to say no to this, and once he says no to this, then I'll walk away from it, but I'll have to give it to him. I tried. And I said, you know, I want to do an episode where the baby learns about death. I thought, that's going to be a non-starter. And he was like, great. <laughs> I was like, shoot. And, you know, I brought in uh, Adam Arkin and uh, Holland Taylor, and Jolie Fisher was already attached to it. Um, originally, I had Carl Reiner in it, who had to back out because he felt it was going to be too much work, and he was replaced with Elliot Gould. And, you know, it was the worst reviews I've ever gotten for something because, as I was afraid, people would say it's a, you know, it's a talking baby show based on a commercial. But at the same time, I felt there was a bit of a learning curve learning how to do the special effect and everything. And I felt by the time, you know, we got going on it, I, I was actually really proud of a lot of the shows that we did, and I thought it was actually a really kind of well-done show. My thinking was it was going to be kind of like an ALF, you know, something that was kind of a gimmick show that, that kind of transcended its premise. But um, we did well enough in the first season to actually get a second season pickup, um, and we were considered a hit. And then what happened was is they had passed on the pilot for my big fat Greek wedding, and then the movie became a huge, huge uh, smash, biggest independent film of all time, and they felt obligated to then pick it up as a series, and that took our time slot and our money. So first they cut our order, and then we never really had a chance to prove that our success was warranted, and we basically disappeared. So that was, that was really disappointing. Uh, but it, it kind of to answer your question, before the Baby Bob show, the, uh, the project I had worked on when my NBC deal was up, what happened after Naked Truth, by the way, just to, to fill in that gap, is I had created a show for Mark Marin for NBC uh, that was getting picked up, and then the head of the network got fired, and the new head of the network came in and said, I don't get this show, and that was the end of my NBC deal. Um, and I had an idea um, to do a show set in the porn industry for HBO that uh, I did for them that uh, they ended up not 
did it did I really, did I just find out that they had developed a number of shows in that genre but always pulled away from it because they were uncomfortable with the world. Um, so that didn't go forward. And then when I was brought in for Baby Bob, uh, I said he was read my script about porn, and that's what they hired me off of. And it was really kind of a dramatic half hour. And I said, what about this made you think I was right for for talking baby show? And they said, we just like the writing. I said, all right. So um, after Baby Bob, I did another show, another comedy uh, called Misconceptions, which starred Jane Leeds and French Stewart and an actor named Adam Rothenberg and a young Taylor Momsen. Uh, and that was a show that we got picked up for, and about two weeks before our premiere, the network got canceled. The WB disappeared. So that show never aired. So between Naked Truth, Baby Bob, and Misconceptions, out of the, I don't know, 50 episodes that I made, about 10 of them had aired, it seems. So I'd, I'd done more and more episodes that had never seen the light of day, which was getting very frustrating. And so uh, the... The writer's strike happened soon after that, and I was online actually with Matt Nix outside Paramount. Matt Nix, who created Burn Notice and um, and recently The Gifted, uh, and he said, you know, you should really try writing an hour long. Like a comic hour long is is big. Uh, that's that there's a market for that. And so I wrote a spec strip that was kind of an action drama hour that uh, that I didn't sell. And then um, a mutual friend of mine who I'd been working with. Uh, as a writer who went back to being an executive named Jeff Kleeman, who was my roommate in college. He now runs Ellen DeGeneres' company. Um, but he, he had gone back to being an executive and was um, talking about movies that could be turned into TV shows. And we were both mutually friends with Nicholas Meyer, and we both thought of Time After Time, the, um, the film from the 70s with uh, Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen and David Warner about H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper. And so we sold that show to Warner Brothers, um, and then as often happens, you're, you're detecting the pattern, the executive who bought it left his job, and it was kind of orphaned. Um, and we were trying to get it going and, and couldn't sell it, or Warner Brothers didn't want us to take it out. And then what ended up happening is Kevin Williamson came across the, the idea of doing the movie as a, as a TV show, and it ended up being made for ABC last year and, and getting canceled. It was, it was a very different version than what we wanted to do. So that, those are the dramas I started writing, and uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, I knew Matt Weiner from before the Naked Truth. He was a friend of mine, and, and I gave him his first job in sitcoms. He was working as a sitcom writer for a long time, and then he wrote the Mad Men spec, which got he couldn't sell, but that got him hired on the Sopranos. And then after the Sopranos, he was fam famously able to sell that script to AMC and create, you know, one of the great dramas of all time. Um, I gave Matt my time after time script to read to get his assessment of it, and he really liked it. And um, he kind of called me out of the blue and asked if I wanted to come work on Mad Men uh, as a consulting producer. Um, and I said yes, and that was my first real drama job. Well, you know, it's funny, a real drama job, and you're you're walking into, like, the big leagues of drama. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I've had so many, I've had a lot of guests who, who have done guest spots on that show, and they said, you know, as an actor, you know, it was very hush-hush, you know, you only saw your part of the script, but as a writer, it must be, um, must be interesting when you're, and a producer, when you come on and you're involved with a program like that, it's like, you must, you see what's going on, but you can't say a word. Yeah, I mean, you have to sign an NDA <laughs> before you're allowed in the room. Uh, you know, Matt really believed the one thing the show had going for it was that you never really knew what was going to happen week to week, and that's why it, it had what became kind of a running joke of the, you know, coming next week on Mad Men, and it was a series of 
just non sequitur comments from people that no indication of what the episode was. But I think he's right. I think, you know, all you have as a writer is really surprised that the audience doesn't know what's about to happen next. And so he was really vigilant about that. But, you know, when you talked earlier about um, being intimidated or anxious coming on the show, that was a show I was very intimidated to start on because I had never done a drama and it was the best drama on TV. Um, and, and so it took me a couple days or a week to start to get my sea legs a little bit on that, on that show until I started feeling comfortable with it. But it was an amazing experience. I mean, to be able to witness and be, and be a participant in, in, in that show firsthand, you know, is something I'll always treasure. It was just uh, an extraordinary experience and, um, and very exciting, you know, to be a part of it. Uh, it was different because you're used, you know, when you're used to working on multi-cam sitcoms, you know, you have the show every week at the end where you shoot in front of an audience and, and you're there. And with a drama, of course, it, it's shot and you don't really see it getting made until it, it's put together. Um, and that was a new experience uh, where you, you kind of are just sort of story, 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 and then you wake up and look up at the screen and there's the episodes. Um, so that, that was novel. Um, but, you know, Matt, who has a great sense of humor, always saw it as, as kind of a comedy, too, and he always liked having a writer who had a comedy background on the show. Um, and, and so I, uh, not that the show it was, it was about laugh lines, but it was, you know, it was, uh, there was an opportunity for comedy that people might not be as aware of, but when you ever, if you ever see that, have a chance to see that show in front of an actual audience, it gets a tremendous amount of laughter. It was kind of an interesting experience to see it playing from an audience. So that's awesome. That's cool. Now then, then, then you end up on a uh, hell on wheels, which is once again, completely different than what you're writing for how did that job come about and and what happened after madman is i was not really able to get immediately another job on a drama because they would see the credit and they'd read my spec scripts or my sample scripts and none of the scripts really were like madman you know they were action comedies or science fiction you know like time after time uh they didn't really bear out the credit and so i realized i needed to write a script that would that would validate the Mad Men credit, in other words. So while I was waiting for notes on this pilot that never went forward, because, again, they had a management <laughs> a management uh, crossover where the person who bought the show got fired and the new person came in. Um, so I wrote the spec drama that, uh, that I got a really good response to, and that's what they read at Hell on Wheels, and they really liked my, my script, and then they saw the Mad Men credit as well. Um, they were a great group of people. Uh, I had never written a Western, certainly. Um, but, you know, to me, always, any, any good show is always about the character and then the storytelling. So that was a kind of an education in, in itself as well, because I was with the room of nothing but drama writers. And uh, I was on one with any really comedy background. But uh, John Worth, who ran the show, was just a superb guy. Uh, really a wonderful boss to work for, and um, and that was a tremendous experience. They shot up in Calgary, so going up there to supervise an episode where you're just out in the wilderness in Calgary was kind of an amazing experience. And Anson Mount was tremendous. Uh, it was a, it was that was just a terrific uh, opportunity as well, um, and I really enjoyed the people on it. Um, but yeah, that, there was again that there was a bit of a self doubt at writing a western for the first time, but then you just kind of. You know, take a breath, do the work, uh, try and write to the character voices. Um, and and it, I, I, when I joined the show, I knew it was its last season going in, um, which was both sad but also kind of exciting because you knew you were going to help put it to bed, which is always a, you know, creating a show and, and ending the show are the two most interesting challenges. Uh, for So 
So after that, you know, after it's the last season, then you end up on uh, Catch Fire, which is a show I love. Me and my girlfriend watch it all the time. I think what, oh, what made that show so good is, well, it's just the acting and the writing. You're watching it. You're not, ex- you're not, you're not looking to watch for explosions or, you know, action. You're just looking at good, to us, it was good, smart TV. Now, you came on later in the show, and that show was a show that advanced through time. Did you have to familiarize, familiarize yourself with the earlier seasons, or did you just know going in that this was going to be the time, the year that it's going on when you went in? Um, what happened with Hold and Catch Fire, you know, so I'd come off Hell on Wheels. I'd now done two AMC shows from Mad Men to Hell on Wheels, and, and Holton Catch Fire was also AMC. Uh, so AMC was familiar with me. Uh, Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers, what was interesting is they created the show, but that was the first show they ever really written. They, the first show they were ever on was their own show, and they, they had hired, there was a showrunner, Jonathan Lisco, I think was his name, who was, uh, who was over them and kind of taught them the rope. So the first two seasons, Jonathan Lisco was kind of the showrunner, and they were kind of learning the craft underneath him. Um, so I, I had seen the first season of, of Halt and Catch Fire, and in all honesty, I, I didn't, I liked it, but didn't love it. I just felt it was, it was trying a little too hard, uh, to be like Mad Men, the, the, the lead character of Joe was kind of, you know, I felt like a bit of a contrivance. There was stuff I really thought was interesting, but it just, it just didn't kind of hit for me. And then I got the phone call they wanted to meet with me on the show, and I had TiVo'd or DVR'd the, the second season, but I hadn't watched it yet. So I, I binge-watched the second season before the meeting and uh, loved it. I thought, wow, okay, they really changed the show up in the second season. There was a kind of more of a focus on the, on the women characters. Um, they made Joe a more well-rounded character. Uh, and I thought, I, I had never seen a show improve quite as much that, as I saw that show improve from first to second season. So suddenly I went from I'll take the meeting to I was really excited about the meeting because I saw what, what they were doing with the show. So I met with the guys, Chris and Chris, who are just terrific guys, smart, funny, um, you know, really, really good, decent guys. Uh, and what they do when they read a script, and this really impressed me, is they both, each one will read a script and then they'll hand it to the other if they like it. So both of them have to like a script, and before, and they'll, they'll both have to like a script before they'll even look at the person's resume. So they responded, they each responded individually to my pilot, and then saw that I'd worked on Mad Men and Helen Wheels, which only made them more interested. But I, I, I was, I was thrilled that they responded to the writing first as opposed to the resume. Um, and we just had a really great meeting, and then um, they brought me onto the show, and I just—it was just a wonderful experience. The, the writing—it was probably one of my favorite staff experiences I've ever had. It was a relatively small group of really supportive people who were really collaborative. Chris and Chris were very generous showrunners. Um, you know, I did two episodes that season, um, and the second one, which the New York Times called one of the most memorable of 2016. Was, they didn't touch a word on it. We had to make some cuts and everything. And it was just a tremendously uh, you know, rewarding creative experience. And I was really proud of the show. And I felt the third season improved on what they had done in the second season. Um, they didn't tell me about the, the... I knew it was moving from Texas to Silicon Valley, but the time jump we did in the third season, I didn't know about until we sat down as a group. Um, so I knew about it then. But what was interesting is because Chris and Chris are both in their early 30s, and most, I think almost the entire staff was older than they were. Uh, and so I was one of the people who actually had lived through the time period that they were doing, which they found really valuable to have. 
and it was weird suddenly being able to look at your life as, as history right. and say things like, you know, I never, Risotto didn't really exist out here until that year, or, or I remember when valet parking first became a thing, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> that were kind of trivial things in your, in your mind suddenly became details that, that, that would fit into the scripts. So that was a great show. Now, now, and then, you know, as I look through, what is household name? So, uh, household name, I, <laughs> yes, household name is a pilot that I did uh, through Amy Poehler's company at NBC Studios for ABC that was going to be Carol Burnett's return to television. And the premise of the show was uh, that Carol was a famous actress named Vivian Valmont. Um, who who had been living beyond her means and could no longer afford her house but didn't want to leave it. So her sort of right-hand man uh, comes up with a situation where the, whoever buys her house uh, has to let her live in it until she dies. And it was loosely based on, like, kind of the Hugh Hefner and Jaja Gabor stories that, that had a similar situation. on Something that's very actually common in Europe. People will do that in Europe. Um, and so uh, we shot a pilot in uh, March of last year, 2017, that was one of the great pilot shoots I've ever experienced. It was it went like gangbusters. Um, and then when it came to the testing of things, you know, we had we had to cut a lot from the show. And the married couple that moves in, uh, there were some issues in the testing with who they were and what they were that ABC got very hung up on and um, uh, felt that was that was going to prevent them from picking up the show. And then, but they still were very high on it and wanted to kind of revamp it. So they they had me both rewrite the pilot and write a second episode where Amy, who was going to play Carol's daughter, uh, has a big guest role in the second episode. And um, for whatever reason, they felt it never, the family issue was never resolved for them. And I did attempt after attempt to mollify them. Um, and sadly, they just they couldn't uh, commit to it, which is a shame because Carol was absolutely brilliant in it. Um, audiences loved her. You know, her special drew 15 million viewers. There's a huge hunger for her, and this was a terrific role for her, which gave her a lot of opportunity to do a lot of things that people love about her. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it's like it's not it's not going to happen. See that sucks because you're right, man. It's like it's like that's just how TV is so weird, you know. You know, you, you're you've had a great resume. You have Carol Burnett connected to it, Amy Poehler. It's like you you know people. That's what gets me irritated. You know people will watch Carol Burnett. There's a whole demographic out there that grew up watching her, and they're still going to watch her. And just because a network can't get you know the family thing together, right? It's like it doesn't make a difference. A lot of people watch crap. Let them watch really good stuff. Well, that's the point I was trying to make, is that most shows, you know, there's usually like one character or two characters that people usually tune in for, but not every character can be the big, broad, funny character. It's like, you know, uh, Will and Grace are the more grounded characters on that show, and Jack and Karen are the big, broader, funnier ones. On The Big Bang Theory, Sheldon's the big, funny character, and, you know, Johnny Galecki and Kelly Kuko kind of, you know, grounded him. Uh, you know, it's tax, if you watch Taxi, you had Lotka and Louie were kind of the big broader characters and all the other characters are very kind of low key and, and grounded and realistic. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't understand the logic behind it because I think people who love Carol would have loved this show. Um, and I think it would have gotten a big audience and I think it would have been a hit show. I, 
it, it, it's, it's a decision I'll never understand. Um, and, you know, the other problem is you try and set it up at other networks, and when places don't develop the show, you've, you've contorted the premise to fit whatever the network you're developing it for, and then every own, other network has their own specific way of looking at things or stuff they like or don't like. So it's very hard to then, you know, set it up somewhere else. Um, and, you know, even though there's all these channels and all these shows, any show you create to this day still, there's usually like three buyers for it. You know, if it's, if it's one type of show, there's like three networks that it will be right for. Um, but, yeah, this is one, you know, for everything I thought I knew about television, I thought a, a fun premise with Carol Burnett and Amy Poehler attached, I didn't see how that show did not go forward. And I, and I felt we delivered. I, I felt that, you know, there were a couple of flaws with it that were easily fixable um, that were not, were not show killers, especially when you look at all the shows that get on the air. You're like, right. why would that show have gotten on? Know. You know, I, I want to I thank you for coming on. This is great. You know, I don't know. I, I, I saw your name on Catch, Catch Fire, but I think, well, we have Amy Hill's a mutual friend on Facebook. We have some mutual friends. I think you commented on something on someone's, I don't know, maybe it was Toby Huss's page or something like that. And so I'm glad I hit you up because uh, you, you, you've had an amazing career and just all shows I pretty much watch, which is weird because, you know, you sit there and from sitcoms to dramas, it was great. So now do you tweet or anything? Are you on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. Real, I mean, I technically started like that thing, but it's just, it's one of those things where I just worry that once I, if I start it, then I have to really commit to it. And it's such a time suck that uh, I, I have a, I have a love hate relationship with social media where I, I'll post stuff on my Facebook page, but, um, but I just, uh, I've kind of resisted the the siren call of of, of tweeting. I just think um, I, I just knowing my personality, which can get addictive. It, it's gonna it would consume me. Um, <laughs> but the you know the uh, but yeah, Toby Hush you mentioned, amazing amazing guy. Um, and yeah, you know being able to do comedy and drama is a handful of people who kind of are able to do both. I think I think if you can do, people going from com who can do comedy going to drama is easier than people going from drama to comedy because I think you know. People are either know how to be funny or, or they don't. Uh, you know, I think there's an if you can tell a decent story in a comedy, you can usually adapt that to dramatic sensibilities. But I, yeah, I've been very fortunate to work on great shows. But it, it's been you know following that internal compass. You said the sh they're all shows you watch. They're all they're all shows I watch too. And it's that's been my template, which is like, you know, is it a show? If, if it's a show I would watch, then that's the show I want to work on. When, when I'm presented with opportunities, I've made a couple of caveats where if it's a show that a friend of mine is doing, I'll sometimes do a, a show if a friend of mine is doing it, then I'll make an exception for that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think if you follow your internal taste meter, that's really all you have, both as a, you know, really as a writer, is what, what's your taste? And then you write to your taste, and you, you seek out shows that match your taste, and you work with people that share your taste. And that's usually the way to do ideally good work. That's awesome. I want to thank you. So people, go to IMDb, look up uh, Michael Saucman, and go watch some of his shows. You know, with with, with uh, Netflix, you can actually find some episodes he wrote, and you can Google it, and you can do that. And you do that. So follow him. Uh, go on, on IMDb. Follow me on Twitter, people. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram. I'm Cooper Talk One. I post a lot of pictures of food because, as you know, when I had that health problem five years ago, I wrote a cookbook. Go to my website, StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low sodium recipes, easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. I, I don't have any cumin recipes. It's all right, but I do use cumin at home. So do that, and you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net, and my website is coopertalk.net, where I have about 670 episodes. So check out Michael's work. 
support TV. It's a wonderful medium. My name is Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.